Welcome to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure to welcome a regular guest now on Viewpoints, Ashley Hay, who's the editor of the Griffith Review. And edition 71 has just been published. This month's recommended retail price is $27.99. Welcome again to uh, Viewpoints, Ashley Hay. Thanks for having me, Henry. It's my pleasure, Ashley. And um, how are things up there in Queensland, I guess? Look, I think, you know, 2021 is uh, is going to be an interesting year. I think everybody was very hopeful it was going to be quite different to 2020. I'm not sure there's ever been a New Year's Eve that's been as highly anticipated as that last <laughs> one. Um, but, you know, here we all are still doing what we're doing, um, you know, still adapting to the pandemic as it makes its way across different facets of our lives. And I suspect that's going to be where we are for a while yet. Mm, absolutely. Now, edition 71 of the Griffith Review is out there now, and as I said to you off mm-hmm. air, I think it's brilliant. For those listeners not familiar with the Griffith Review, uh, before we go into this particular edition, a brief synopsis of the publication in general. Sure. So we're a, we're a literary journal. We're hosted at Griffith University, which is you know part of the explanation for our name. We come out four times a year. And uh, each edition that we publish explores a different theme or a different question. Um, in this instance, we're looking at resources, both tangible and intangible. One of the things that we try to do is to work with an ever-changing pool of writers, and that's writers who are emerging, maybe publishing one of their first or their first piece with us, all the way through to very familiar names that readers will know from other places. We also draw, we draw on literary writers, we draw on academics, we draw on researchers, we draw on experts. We try to bring those narratives into a very accessible general readership space. Um, And I think one of the things that is exciting in terms of making the books is that we are essentially generating a conversation inside each edition with the different voices that we curate and the different pieces of non-fiction essays, reportage, fiction, poetry. And also then what we hope is that it's working to generate conversations beyond the book as well, exploring, you know, whatever our, our topic in a particular quarter might be. Mm, um, you do that, I must say, so well. Now, now Ashley, in your introduction to um, edition 71 of Griffith Review, you say, and I might quote, that uh, assembling an edition of Griffith Review is a bit like word building in Minecraft, and that's a contemporary <laughs> video game. You might, I think you do that brilliantly. Uh, I think it's worth sharing that bit with our audience. You might like to explain that. <laughs> Well, this this edition um, began, uh, we published an edition a couple of years ago called Writing the Country, which was a collection of nature writing and, and pieces really exploring the, the biggest landscapes of Australia in particular. And I was very interested in bringing together an edition that explored the resources, the things that are in and on the land, I guess. We had a working title for a long time for this book of Animal, Vegetable, Mineral, What we realised last year was, um, you know, the pandemic is going to cut across lots of things this year, as I said, and it's going to impact uh, the stories that we want to tell as well. And we started to understand that as well as exploring those animal, vegetable, mineral resources, we were also interested in exploring more intangible resources like narrative or like hope. Um, and I started to think about resources and, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in stories we tell around climate change and adaptation 
And I started to think about our broader relationship with resources and the way we are, you know, very um, particularly in a country like Australia, for many people, we, we kind of have a sense of abundance. We have a sense of, uh, you know, the, the toilet paper hoarding and the pasta sauce hoarding of last year was probably the first time many Australians had run into ideas of security and supply in terms of what was available to them. I'm the owner operator of a 12 year old son uh, and he plays this game Minecraft and what you do in Minecraft is you build a world and one of the things that has always fascinated me about the, the sort of construct of this particular game is that what you are given to build the world is pretty limitless. It's not like you only have, you know, 46 pieces of grass and 32 pieces of water. And if you want to build something, you know, you can just put down more and more and more and more and more rocks or bits of grass or particular animals. And there is just this infinite supply. Now, that's fantastic from a kind of imaginative sense. Um, and, you know, he makes amazing places and they're incredible to look at. But I started thinking about the way that for many of us, we do sort of behave the same way in our world in terms of the water we access, in terms of the way food comes to us, in terms of, you know, our relationship with those things. That's a very first world privileged perspective. Mm. Um, the other thing that fascinated me about Minecraft is a metaphor is that the Minecraft game operates in two modes, I guess. Uh, one is creative, where the point of the game is that you are building these amazing worlds and, you know, amazing structures and you're putting a lot of animals and fish and, you know, everything, pandas, llamas, chickens, the whole thing in there. But there's also a survival mode. And in terms of that kind of broader question about how we are in the world and how we think about questions, particularly all the questions that come out of climate and adaptation, those two words, words, the creative mode and the survival mode, have a really different resonance. So what I wanted to do was take this, you know, probably quite tangential pop culture reference of this game and come into looking at our relationships with resources obviously climate lays across some of these questions and just just looking at the ways we might change how we think about what we can do with what's available to us and maybe the ways we can change our understanding of availability and access as well in terms of adaptation um, in terms of maybe a, a different sort of reckoning with with the world that we all have to exist in and take forward. Mm, and it, it leads well into um, the title, Remaking the Balance. That, of course, implies mm. the balance is uh, um, either obsolete and or broken. You know, we spent so long um, working on that word, remaking, and I know it's, a, it's, a, it's an awkward word in some ways, but I think... Um, I think Certainly our sense is in the book and in the, the different pieces that the book draws on, yes, there are a lot of things that are broken. There are probably a lot of things that are obsolete. The other thing that we wanted to pick up on in that particular phrasing, the idea of remaking something rather than fixing it, um, rather than reinstating it, was that, that sort of idea of making something anew. And I think one of the things that was interesting in the commentary that came right at the beginning of the pandemic's pinch, I guess, last year, around March, around April, around May, was an enormous 
sense of possibility that, you know, this was unquestionably a massive point of rupture and disruption in so many areas, in so many ways. And was there a possibility that that rupture, that disruption could lead to something not just reinstated, not just returning to something, but could lead to change, to new ways of thinking things, new ways of doing things, whether that was in, um, you know, the economic space, whether that was in, the, you know, sort of in terms of workplace, whether that was in terms of um, people's work-life balance, whether that was in terms of all sorts of relationships and intersections that are part of life. And so the wording in the title was a, was looking for ways to very subtly um, reinforce that idea that we are in a moment and we're still, you know, we are still in that moment of the terrible word last year was pivot, wasn't it? Mm. Um, we're still in that moment and it's a way of saying, well, are we just responding to this or are we actually actively trying to take this opportunity to remake systems, to remake approaches, to remake conversations, uh, how can we do those things and, and what's the opportunity that's presented here? It's mm, a good point. Now, obviously, buying the book and reading it, there's so much in there. Um, I mean, we're not going to go through anywhere near or try to even go through anywhere near it. I, I've picked it selectively with due respect to mm. all the other wonderful pieces, just a couple on which to focus mm-hmm. uh, Ashley, and Generation COVID by Katie Holmes, it initially attracted me because April's my favourite time in Melbourne, it starts. Well, it's mine too, and I'll, I'll, be, a bit, I'll be a bit self-centred here. <laughs> it's my birthday month. Um, oh, there you are. And also uh, post-World War migration on a more serious level, the narrative uh, of it um, is only partly true, the assimilation. Being one of those people, um, mm. uh, Generation is, is of interest to me, and, f- and of course, thirdly, being a school principal and being right in the mm. centre of COVID-19. So that one really struck me. You might like to elaborate a little. The collective memory is the powerful part of that. I think so. So Katie Holmes works out of La Trobe University. Uh, she's an historian there. I'm particularly, I think this is one of the sort of central pieces uh, in the book um, because it is talking about narrative as a resource in a way. Now that sounds uh, possibly quite academic, um, (laughs) but what it's talking about is the stories that we tell, not necessarily individually, but stories that become our history, the way the narrative about a certain time, about a certain uh, moment, a certain set of experiences become the sort of national narrative. And in terms of the narrative, what Katie Holmes is looking at, in terms of the narrative about COVID, she's looking back at um, stories that we've we've created at a national level about earlier large moments in history. Of course, one of our most famous, um, you know, collective memory constructions has been around World War One and our involvement as Australians in that. But Katie also picks up then, of course, on the pandemic that followed World War One and the, the sort of loss of collective memory around that. And she's exploring the work that historians do in terms of creating those memories. And she's also casting forward to what the collective memory of this time might look like. And again, um, picking up on that sense of opportunity, of a way of 
looking at, um, you know, yes, there are narratives that might be carried forward in terms of we had this terrible moment of um, strangeness and change and then everything just snapped back to normal and it was all fine. Or looking at, you know, asking for the children who are going through this at the moment, how are they going to remember their parents? How are they going to remember their mothers in particular? Life is, you know, it's it's certainly been a a shorter period of homeschooling for lots of children in Australia than, you know, they're going through in other parts of the world, although I'm very conscious that in Victoria it was a very different, in Melbourne in particular, it was a very different scenario than, say, for us up here in Queensland. But she's just looking at how we can consciously think now about the way the stories of this time are carried forward and become part of that collective shared narrative of what happened in these years and how that then intersects with the practice of history um, and the kind of national narratives that that we take with us as we go. Mm. Um, On a completely different tangent, to show the breadth of of what you cover in the Griffith Review, uh, the picture gallery, the Crimson Line, Trent Park, Mm. um, in that he continues, as you say, his fascination with the transformative powers of light. Um, That's... uh, that's just so brilliant, isn't it? The pictures it's and the interpretations. An absolute privilege to be able to include some of Trent Park's work in an edition of Griffith Review. I am a huge uh, fan, so a lot of um, people will know Trent's um, uh, represented by the very famous photo agency Magnum and uh, has done a lot of beautiful reportage work and photo essays uh, in black and white across the years. Um, and this this particular series, which uh, is, is part of a larger series that he's working on, I think there's a publication coming from him as well around this. This is a, a sort of imagined narrative where he's exploring colour and light um, and particularly shades of this beautiful red. He became um, very fascinated about um, the, the particularly brilliant red that comes from cochineal, which is a, um, a, a resource, a substance that comes from insects, awfully female insects who are, who are sort of, um, well, literally crushed and boiled to generate these very brilliant uh, commercial dyes that range all the way through scarlet and magenta to crimson and orange and he's using this kind of palette to construct um, a quite surreal and beautiful narrative um, around sort of quite industrial landscapes, landscapes that look very abandoned, beautiful skyscapes, some stunning imagery of clouds. You know, he's very interested in atmosphere. He's very exercised by climate change, that sort of in the invisibility of those carbon dioxide levels that, you know, we cannot think about because we can't see them. Um, all those sorts of uh, all those sorts of ideas are feeding into this work. We are incredibly thrilled that we've got twelve of these beautiful images, which I think he describes as a kind of beautiful hybrid of strange truth and imagination. Um, We've got 12 of these images in the book. Um, and his book, The Crimson Line, um, which is his seventh book. I think it, I think it is out now, um, but it's the sort of longer suite of this, this story that he's 
exploring and generating through these beautiful works. Mm, it's very, very powerful. Lends it so well to to interpretation. There's so, so mm. much more. I didn't even get to John Kinsella. I love poetry. Um, mm. um, qualifying aid to experience a person, a termite, a bird. It's talata all the way through the repeating line. They're not a noun or an abstract noun. People need to read that poem too because that's a it's a brilliant poem by a brilliant poet, isn't it? Absolutely, and this is a long work by John. Mm. Um, I was really thrilled to be able to give it the space, and I think it too speaks. Um, it speaks into so many of the powerful non-fiction pieces as an amazing piece of narrative um, non-fiction, a big piece of reportage by Joe Chandler, which is Joe's one of our leading um, non-fiction writers, reporters. Um, and she, we funded her through our reportage project, which of course meant that we imagined she would be travelling around writing something for us instead of which she generated an amazing piece of work from her lockdown space in Melbourne, um, which is an incredibly powerful emotional piece uh, around climate. Um, there's some stunning pieces around energy, which I think is possibly an interesting combination of words, but uh, Nicole Hashem looking at hydrogen and and what it would actually take to transform an economy, and Ian Lowe, who's a you know a wonderful uh, a wonderful writer, scientist, and wonderful sort of writer for general audiences, looking at Australia's very on again, off again relationship with nuclear energy across the last 50, 60 years and more. So yes, it's um it's there's a there's a richness in um, the fiction, in the poetry, in all the different all the different uh, pieces that hopefully come together to make, as I say, one kind of bigger conversation inside the book as well. It certainly does do, it certainly does do that, Ashley. I, I commend you on it uh, and I, I recommend it highly. There's something, there's got to be something in there for everybody, if not a lot of it. Um, as always, a pleasure, Ashley, and I'm already looking forward to edition 72, which I believe is not far from being uh, put together. That's right. We're just finalising the writers for that now. So that one will be ready for you for early May. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for your time and a wonderful contribution to uh, thoughtful and, and provocative literature. Thanks, Henry. My pleasure. That was Ashley Hay, listeners. Uh, Griffith Review 71, Remaking the Balance, a very powerful set of uh, stories, uh, pictures, etc., poems and, and pieces on, on Remaking the Balance, and we certainly need to do that. It's out right now, and its recommended retail price is twenty seven ninety nine. We'll take a short break. Don't go away. Mm-hmm. 